You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 67, Washington Takes Command. A few weeks ago, I discussed the Continental Congress's decision to create a Continental Army and appoint George Washington as its Commander-in-Chief. Before Washington could take charge, the Provincial Army fought the Battle of Bunker Hill that I discussed for the last two weeks. With that battle over, I'm going to pick up the story of Washington taking command of the new Continental Army. Now, the Continental Congress had voted to create the Continental Army on June 14, 1775. It then appointed George Washington to be the new commander the following day, June 15th. Now, that was two days before Bunker Hill. Word of the new commander did not reach General Artemis Ward in Boston until June 25th, a week after the battle. And even after the word arrived, Washington took a couple of weeks to prepare get his affairs in order, and make the trip to Boston, finally arriving on July 2nd. He was escorted by James Warren, the new president of the Provincial Congress, and Dr. Benjamin Church, the head of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety. Washington first stopped to meet with General Ward, now the Continental Army's second-in-command and the most senior major general in the new army. I'm not sure if Ward was offended or relieved to have a new commander. He did turn over the command promptly and without public comment. If there was a chance that the two might develop a good working relationship, Washington put an end to that over the next few weeks. Washington publicly criticized the lax command structure and leadership that he inherited, which Ward took personally. Now, with Washington were fellow Virginians, the new Major General Charles Lee, third in command of the new army, and newly appointed Brigadier General Horatio Gates. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, the Continental Congress held both men in contention for the top job, and both had been officers in the regular army before they settled in Virginia. Connecticut General Israel Putnam, who played a prominent role at Bunker Hill and most of the other events at the Siege of Boston, also received an appointment as Major General in the new Continental Army. The only Major General not present was Philip Schuyler, who was in Albany trying to resolve the military situation with Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold out around Fort Ticonderoga. Two more Massachusetts generals in the Provincial Army were among the first eight Brigadier Generals appointed by Congress to the Continental Army. Generals John Thomas and William Heath received their commissions. Also, Generals Joseph Spencer from Connecticut and Nathaniel Green from Rhode Island had both served in the Provincial Army and received commissions as brigadiers. And in case you're wondering, 
The others in that first class of brigadier generals were Joseph Sullivan, a New Hampshire delegate to the Continental Congress, who would arrive a few days later, and Richard Montgomery, who was Schuyler's second-in-command in New York, and David Wooster from Connecticut. You may recall this was the same man who had refused Captain Benedict Arnold's access to the Powder House in New Haven right after the Battle of Lexington. So these men rounded out the first class of brigadiers. Now, I know I'm throwing out a lot of new names today, and I don't want anyone to get confused. I will talk about these guys in more details as they become important later in the war, but I just wanted to give quick introductions to the top leadership so you understand what's going on. Now, also with Washington were his new aide, Major Thomas Mifflin, and his secretary, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Reed, both from Pennsylvania, and also two people who will play a prominent role in our story going forward. Now, at the risk of making too many introductions at once, I want to mention one more man accompanying General Washington. Billy Lee was Washington's slave. He served as Washington's personal assistant, valet, butler, and messenger. Washington had purchased Lee in 1768. The two men apparently grew very close. Lee was one of the few men anywhere who could keep up with Washington on a horse. Both men were excellent and daring riders. Lee would serve with Washington for all eight years of the war, remaining by his side through everything. It's unclear if Washington ever confided in Lee, because if he did, Lee never betrayed that confidence. It was clear that Washington was close with Lee and appreciated his services. When Washington died, Lee was the only slave that Washington freed outright. He also granted Lee a pension for the remainder of his life. I've already given some background on the new generals, and I will probably need to provide some more background on more of them in future episodes. But today, I really want to focus on Washington himself. Hopefully everybody knows who George Washington is, and there are literally over a thousand published biographies about the man, almost all of which are going to be better than this brief summary. But in the interest of being thorough, here is a brief background. Washington was one of the earliest people I introduced in this podcast, way back in episode 5. There, as a young man, he blundered into the Ohio Valley, and kicked off the Seven Years' War between Britain and France, known in America as the French and Indian War. In 1759, as the French and Indian War was nearing its end, Washington married Martha Custis, a wealthy widow with two children of her own. George, then 26, left active military service and got elected to the House of Burgesses later that year. For the next 15 years, he spent his years as a gentleman farmer and minor legislator, while remaining a Virginia militia officer. Washington had begun wearing his militia uniform to the Second Continental Congress, where he was a delegate. Some have argued that he was angling to be made the new commander of the Continental Army. As I mentioned, from public and private statements of Washington around this time, I think he hoped to be made a general but did not anticipate being appointed commander-in-chief. When offered the command, though, he stepped up and accepted it. Washington, as a man, was extremely formal, quiet, and reserved. As a boy, he came from one of the lesser families in Virginia and always focused on deporting himself more like the wealthier leaders in the colony. He focused obsessively on his dress, 
speech, manners, and behavior, and expected others to do the same. He rarely took anyone into his confidence or engaged in casual conversation. If anyone ever betrayed his confidence, even in a minor way, he would cut them off rather coldly and would not allow them to become close ever again. When Washington arrived in Cambridge, the southern officer experienced a bit of a culture shock with his new army made up of New Englanders. Washington had expected to command an army of over 20,000. The force that met him, however, had less than 14,000 fit for duty. And fit for duty referred only to the state of their health, not whether they were really trained to fight in battle. While he did not comment publicly about his first thoughts on the new army, he did write a letter to his distant cousin at Mount Vernon. Quote, The people of this government have obtained a character which they by no means deserved. Their officers, generally speaking, are the most indifferent kind of people I ever saw. They are by no means such troops in any respect as you are led to believe of them from the accounts which are published. But I need not make myself enemies among them by this declaration, although it is consistent with the truth. I dare say the men would fight very well if properly officered, although they are an exceeding dirty and nasty people. End quote. Washington was shocked at the level of disorganization that soldiers and officers did not respect the chain of command and that blacks and whites were fighting alongside one another. He immediately began to try to change all of these things. And one of the things, though, that helped make Washington great was his ability to accept advice and to change his views when convinced of a better idea. Washington initially ordered the dismissal of all black troops in the army. As a Virginian, he was raised with the concern that armed blacks created the risk of a slave insurrection. New Englanders, though, had no such fears. Free whites outnumbered both slaves and free blacks combined by overwhelming numbers in New England. Convinced by his New England officers that dismissing the black troops was a bad idea, he soon reversed himself and permitted the racially integrated units to continue. Over time, he grew to admire and appreciate the capabilities of these men. His concerns about organization, deportment, and the chain of command, though, did require change. After personally inspecting the lines and getting numerous reports on the state of his new army, one of Washington's first actions was to hold several courts martial to remove officers who had exhibited cowardice during the Battle of Bunker Hill. He also took an inventory of his army, including men, arms, and supplies. He did away with the right of soldiers to elect their officers. All Continental officers would receive a commission from the Continental Congress. Washington knew that an effective army needed discipline. He issued rules against profanity, drunkenness, and gambling. Officers and men had to attend daily religious services. Violations could be punished with floggings. He ordered officers to improve the neatness and appearance of their men and the camps, keep their men from wandering away from camp without orders, and crack down on the destruction of private property. The new commander issued an order for sentries not to communicate with the enemy. Now, 
banning unauthorized fraternization with the enemy might seem an obvious thing. But you have to remember that the soldiers on the front lines at Boston Neck or Charleston Neck often stood within shouting distance of their counterparts as the other side. So such conversations just seem natural, even if it was just yelling at each other or even sometimes joking banter. Such conversations, however, were banned, as was any correspondence with the enemy. Now, supplies were also a primary concern for Washington. He tried to get Congress to buy more shirts for the Army. He really wanted whole uniforms, but realized that this was impossible for now. Many men had been wearing the same unwashed shirts for months, reducing them to rags. Washing their clothes was impossible, as there were not enough women around to do the work. Apparently, it was inconceivable that a soldier might actually wash his own clothes. So new shirts would go a long way toward improving morale. Congress, however, could not come up with the money even for that. And instead of uniforms, Washington ordered his generals and aides to wear ribbons over their shoulders, much like a Miss America sash. Washington wore a light blue sash, his generals wore pink, and his aides wore green sashes. Field officers would wear colored cockades, a smaller ribbon tied in a bow, in their hats. Washington organized his army into three divisions, one for each of the major generals present in Boston. He put General Ward in charge of the army's right at Roxbury, defending Boston Neck. General Lee took charge of the left, which included the defense of Charlestown Neck against the British on Bunker Hill. General Putnam commanded the center at Cambridge under Washington's direct supervision. Now, Washington may have expected that the men in his new army would need training and discipline. What really shocked him was the lack of ammunition and supplies. Originally, his aides told him that the army had just over 300 barrels of gunpowder, enough to give each soldier about one full cartridge box and not much more, and that was not even counting the needs of any artillery. That count, however, had been based on old paperwork. It had not taken into account all the powder that had been used over the past month, including the entire Battle of Bunker Hill. When his aides actually did a physical check on inventory, they found only 90 barrels for the entire army. When Washington heard the news, he was apparently struck speechless for some time. He realized that he did not have enough to fight even one battle with the British. If the British attacked at this time, his army could not fight back. Washington did not write any letters to Congress about this desperate shortage. He feared that if the enemy learned of this fact, they would march out of Boston and crush his army as they could not even return fire for very long. In fact, the British commander, General Gage, did hear about the powder shortage. After all, he still had his spy network, including Benjamin Church, head of the Committee of Safety. Gage, however, did not believe the intelligence, thinking it was an attempt to draw him out of Boston into battle. Washington made getting more powder a priority, but it would take months to get any significant increase in stock. He had to issue orders banning any firing practice or unauthorized discharges in order to conserve what little powder they had. Also, to counter the lack of bayonets for most of the men, the army ordered the production and deployment of spears 
to defend against an attack, and even these were slow in coming. Disease also became more of a problem over the summer. Dysentery and smallpox swept through the British and provincial camps, killing or disabling many. At one point, nearly 20% of the Continental Army was unfit for service. Hundreds of them would die that summer without ever seeing battle. In late July, Washington appointed Dr. Benjamin Church as head of the newly formed Hospital Department, a position that would later be referenced as Surgeon General. For the most part, the Army seemed to accept its new commander and complied with his policies. It could all quickly fall apart, though. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, General Ward, Washington's second-in-command, took offense at Washington's criticism of the condition of the Army before he took control. Ward knew that that reflected poorly on his own leadership. Lee, third-in-command, was still upset that Congress had not selected him as commander-in-chief. He seemed to be waiting for Washington to screw up so that he could move into the top slot. Both men, however, bided their time and for the moment enforced Washington's policies. Washington knew that his command was not certain. If he did nothing for a long period of time, Congress might get bored and put somebody else in charge. As such, Washington was eager to do battle with the British. But the condition of his army and the lack of ammunition made this impossible. So both armies remained well entrenched in defensive positions, neither side willing to attempt to dislodge the other. On the British side, Bunker Hill seems to have taken the fight out of the British commanders. In July, they received more reinforcements that more than covered their losses from the battle. But Gage in particular seemed unwilling to initiate any new fighting. General Henry Clinton, the second-ranking major general behind General Howe, who had come over on the Cerberus, had pushed to follow through on the original British plan to take Dorchester Heights. His plan would bypass Boston Neck and launch assault troops for a water landing. Clinton actually got as far as putting the soldiers on landing craft, but General Gage got cold feet and sent a messenger ship to recall the invasion before they could land. Now, there were occasional skirmishes. In the days following Washington's arrival, there were apparently several minor attacks and counterattacks near Boston Neck. The British troops attacked defenders at Roxbury possibly in an attempt to capture some stray cattle between the lines. After that, General Ward issued an order calling for any cattle straying beyond American lines to be shot. The Americans attacked and destroyed Brown's Tavern, a small building on Boston Neck occupied by the British regulars. The British would launch another raid a few weeks later, attacking Americans who were trying to reinforce and extend their defensive lines. The Americans would use the distraction of this attack to launch a successful attack of their own on the lighthouse on Lighthouse Island. Taking out the lighthouse would make night movements for the British Navy a little more difficult. So that night, the British crew sent a construction crew with 30 Marines as guards to go out and repair the lighthouse. They were still working on the construction the following morning when Patriots launched another attack on the island this time capturing the construction crew and the Marines, and once again burning down the repaired lighthouse. The arrival of new Continental Rifle Units from Virginia and Pennsylvania created new excitement. 
riflemen liked to show off their skills by firing on sentries across the river in Boston. Now, somehow, the regulars captured one of these riflemen. It's not clear whether they captured him alive and then hanged him, or simply hanged his dead body after they killed him. Either way, the hanging body appeared in Boston in view of the Continental Lines on August 2nd. Enraged riflemen received permission to fire on regulars in Boston, which they did with great zeal for the rest of the day, killing or wounding an unspecified number. British muskets were too far away to return fire, but artillery could, and one rifleman died from a well-placed cannonball. These are only a few examples of the ongoing small-time skirmishing that kept both armies on alert. A slightly larger skirmish occurred on August 26th when Washington ordered the occupation of Plowed Hill, a small hill across the river to the north of Bunker Hill. Overnight, 1,200 Continentals entrenched their position on the hill, giving them a good position across the river against the British on Bunker Hill. The next morning, British artillery opened fire on the Continental forces from Bunker Hill and from several gunboats, but could do little against the entrenched forces. They did manage to kill or injure a few soldiers who ran out of the bunkers to collect British cannonballs. It seems Continental officers gave soldiers a reward for any balls they collected, and a few soldiers tried to use their feet to stop slow-moving cannonballs that were rolling across the field, only to discover that even a relatively slow-moving 20-pound cannonball can still do serious damage to your foot. The Americans had one cannon with them, which they did successfully use to sink one small British gunboat. The British prepared to assault Plowed Hill by boat, but decided against it. Continental riflemen were already picking off too many of them. They certainly did not want another costly win like Bunker Hill for land that they probably couldn't hold even if they took it. In the end, they simply left the Americans in control of the hill. So the summer of 1775 ended with a stalemate over Boston showing no sign of ending. Next week, we're going to head back to Philadelphia to see how the Continental Congress is both levying war and still petitioning the king for peace. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to this week's recommendation, I want to remind everyone about a new Revolutionary War book that is about to hit the market. 
A couple of weeks ago, my book recommendation was Nathaniel Philbrook's book about Bunker Hill. For those of you who listen to these podcasts near the release date, I wanted to mention that Philbrook released a new book this past week called Into the Hurricane, which is about George Washington and the Battle of Yorktown. Now, sorry if this is a spoiler for anyone, but the victory at Yorktown effectively ended the war, resulting in the British agreeing to the Treaty of Paris a few years later. I have to admit, I haven't yet read Philbrick's new book, but given that his other books are so good, and the topic is obviously one that interests me, I cannot wait to read it. I'm sure you'll love it too. I will stick a link on my website at amrevpodcast.com in case you want to take a look. Remember, if you make any Amazon purchase through a link from my website, Amazon gives me a small commission. So, you help support this podcast with a purchase you were going to make anyway. Okay, on to this week's recommendation. So this week, George Washington finally re-enters our story as the new commander of the Continental Army. Now, I touched on the fact that Washington really had shockingly little experience as commander. I think his prior independent command was when he was in his 20s and he started the French and Indian War. For the rest of that war, he served under other British leaders like Generals Braddock and Forbes. His service was not particularly impressive. He never fought in the main theater of that war around the Great Lakes, and he retired from active service before the war even ended. He did not even take to the field a few years later when Virginia fought Lord Dunmore's war. For a man with such little experience to receive command of the entire army, speaks either to how impressive an impression he made on people, or perhaps how desperate Congress was for a leader. In any event, Washington certainly proved himself to be the amazing leader his country needed. And that's probably why, as I mentioned in the main podcast, there are literally over a thousand published biographies on George Washington. I will even reluctantly mention that I devoted an entire podcast episode to explaining why George Washington was truly indispensable to the revolution. Now, this is part of my secret other podcast called Unlearned History, which I did a few years before I started the American Revolution podcast. And I will say I actually did that podcast basically as practice to know how to do a podcast so I could do the American Revolution. If you're interested in listening to this old episode, just Google George Washington Unlearned History. It should come up as the second or third choice. I will warn you, though, that this, I think, was the second podcast I ever recorded. I was still trying out microphones and learning how everything worked, so sound quality may be a little disappointing. But, of course, a book recommendation requires a full-size, professionally written book that really covers Washington's entire life. Now, we all know a little about George Washington, but you really got to read a full biography if you want to completely understand the revolution. Now, the one I like is called Washington, A Life by Ron Chernow. As the title promises, the book covers Washington's life from birth to death. At over 800 pages, it goes into enough detail to cover the many interesting stories that take him from a young man determined to make an impression on the world to colonial politician, then his thrust into power as commander of the Continental Army, his attempts to withdraw from the public stage, 
only to be forced back into events at the Constitutional Convention and Presidency. Even after retirement, the pressure to remain involved in public affairs followed him right up until his death. Aron Chernow is an award-winning author from New York. Before he published his Washington biography in 2010, he published another great book on Alexander Hamilton. Famously, this is the book that inspired Linwell Miranda to write and produce the hit musical Hamilton. There are, of course, other good relatively recent biographies of Washington, including Joseph Ellis's 2005 work, as well as ones by Michael Crawley and James Flexner, which were both published in the last couple of years. Now, despite this heavy competition, I really like Chernow's thoroughness and writing style. He tells a good story while staying true to actual events. And if you're listening to this podcast, you may prefer to listen to your content rather than read it. In that case, Chernow's book is also available as an audiobook. In fact, you can get it for free through a free trial of Audible on Amazon. If you order through the link on my website, again, you will help support this podcast. However you choose to get it, though, you really need to read a good biography of Washington to get a better understanding of both the American Revolution and the founding of the United States. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.